everyone, and thank you for joining me. I'm Tracy Harris, and this is At Home in My Head, the podcast that explores life in the cottage at Woodland Corners. Returning to talk to me today is retired police Captain Lawrence Hunter. Captain Hunter served as a police officer for 24 years, has a master's in forensic psychology, is author of the book Police Reform, and host of Captain Hunter's podcast, which is dedicated to bridging the gap between police and the communities they serve. Joining me again today is Captain Hunter, who was good enough to talk to me about police reform in a prior episode. Today we'll be talking about the recent uh, Derek Chauvin sentencing that was handed down and the social implications, reactions, and analysis. Um, So thank you very much, Captain Hunter, for coming back. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So I assume you've been watching the news like everybody else and that you saw that the Chauvin sentencing was handed down. Uh, That's correct. Uh, Yeah. So I had to tune into that. I've been trying to take a break, but there's no rest for the weary when it comes to that. You got to keep on top of it. So Friday, they announced sentencing. He was convicted in April of second degree unintentional murder, third degree murder and second degree manslaughter. Prosecutors had requested 30 years. He was sentenced to 22.5. They say that that means he'll probably serve about 15. I had a couple of stats that I had pulled up in my reading that I thought were interesting. This is one of the longest prison terms ever imposed on a U.S. police officer in the killing of a Black person. The judge that was involved went beyond the 12 and a half year sentence prescribed under the state guidelines and cited Chauvin's, quote, abuse of a position of trust and authority and also the particular cruelty that was shown to Floyd. The Floyd family members asked the judge to impose the maximum, which would have been 40 years, And several spoke at the sentencing, including his seven-year-old daughter, who gave a recorded video message. There have been 11 non-federal law officers, including Chauvin, who've been convicted of murder for on-duty deaths since 2005. The penalties for the nine who were sentenced before Chauvin ranged from six years, nine months, to life behind bars, with a median being 15 years. With Chauvin sentencing, the Floyd family and Black America witnessed something of a rarity, This is a quote from USA Today. In the small number of instances in which officers were accused of brutality or other misconduct against Black people, they've gone to trial. The list of acquittals and mistrials is longer than the list of sentencings and conviction, which I don't think is a surprise to anybody. So that's kind of a rundown of what happened in the sentencing, how it looks comparatively, what's normal, what's historic and where we are currently with what we got. When you heard the sentence, what was your reaction? First, I was relieved that he got something above the 12 to 15 average that police officers genuinely get. And then as I read the judge's decision, the 22-page decision, and on the rationale of why he gave him 22 and a half years, I really got a little frustrated thinking that he probably should have got the maximum. If there is heinousness, egregiousness, which is quoted in the judge's decision, then we really should be looking to bump it up. Now, I understand that when Derek Chauvin woke up in the morning, he did not have the intention of killing George Floyd. When he arrived on the scene, I don't believe that he intended to kill George Floyd. 
However, his actions, and I agree with the judge's assessment about this, that his actions were heinous. He broke the public trust. And so therefore, that's the reason that he went above, uh, I think he added 10 years to the 12.5 years, and that's how we get to 22. There is a certain a level of heinousness. You know, my reaction is I, I think that he should have gotten 25 or, or maybe even 30 years. I think he probably should have got the 30 years that the prosecution was calling for. We've got to send a message to all law enforcement that this type of behavior, deviating from the public trust in torturing someone for nine minutes, showing complete callousness in disregard for human life is unacceptable. We're sworn to do a job. You got to do that job and take it seriously. A message has to be sent. And you're still pretty active in the policing community, even though you're retired now. Is that correct? Yeah. So I still have a podcast. I wrote a book and I'm still coaching people who want to become police officers or who are take, taking promotional exams. So yeah, I'm still pretty active in those arenas. So have you heard other reactions from other people? So I have not contacted anyone yet. I do have actually after the session, <laughs> I do have uh, where I'm going to speak with uh, someone and we're going to talk about they're taking a promotional exam. So I'll ask them about it, but I have not called anyone and asked them about the decision. Well, it was reported in the media. There were some reactions that were covered. So the Chauvin family was disappointed. Van Jones said that it was a punch in the gut. There was a quote from a Minneapolis protest leader who said, just because it's the most time doesn't mean it's enough time. Mm. There was another quote that I had here. Real justice in America will be black men and black women and people of color who will not have to fear being killed by the police just because the color of their skin. The AP put out that outside the courthouse, a crowd of about 50 people clasped hands or placed them on each other's shoulders. The reaction was subdued as people debated whether the sentence was long enough. Some cursed in disgust. There's another one here at George Floyd Square as the intersection where Floyd was pinned to the pavement is now known. Members of the crowd broke into applause and several said, we'll take it. The last point I have is mine. I've seen people providing arguments for both. Some people are saying, should a cop get more or less or the same? Should they be treated the same as everyone else? Should they be treated more harshly? Should they be treated better? Does the position of authority and responsibility mean that they're under a greater obligation to behave in line with the law? Or does it serve as a credit that they've served in other ways to serve society so that a violation is taken with a grain of salt? I think you kind of alluded to your perspective on that in your last answer about the idea of it being heinous and him having a responsibility. So I, I think I'm seeing where you might lean, but can you give me your thoughts on the people that are debating whether his police service should be a credit to him that serves to mitigate or should it be treated as a greater obligation that he failed? So I, I think that that is certainly a dichotomy of thoughts that people really do wrestle with. And I think that that's why we often have seen police officers get nine, 10, six years, 15 years generally, because they're given some type of preference for their service. And because of the fact that they more than likely didn't wake up in the morning with any type of malice or heinous intentions in their heart. On the other hand is where I'm going to lean on this case. Chauvin really had a responsibility to do the right thing and to show some empathy, compassion. He was entrusted by the public to do a job and to save this man's life. If he was a drowning victim as a police officer, he is mandated to step in, to jump in the water, to throw him a flotation device or do something to save his life. And the judge said this in his 22-page summary that he had an obligation to listen to the crowd. He had an obligation to, to listen to his coworkers. He had an obligation to, once he noticed that Floyd had gone limp, 
to do something, to intervene, to take a pulse, to perform some type of medical aid. And he didn't. There is a heinousness to that. And he, I believe uh, he kept his knee across his neck for another three minutes after that, up until the ambulance arrival. There's no reason for any of that. As a trainer, myself in defensive tactics, there's no reason for any of that. Every defensive tactics expert that testified for the prosecution, at least, all echoed the same sentiments. Uh, I think that what he did was particularly heinous and the world saw it and the world saw it. And there has to be some type of penalty for that. We must not only punish the offender, Chauvin in this case, but we have to send a message to law enforcement that this type of behavior is not tolerated and will not be tolerated by a civil society. Right. And there is another layer, I suppose, in that it was done while he was on duty as part of the job. He was acting as a police officer when he did this. It wasn't just a cop that did something wrong, like a police officer maybe that, you know, takes a bribe that is on some kind of payroll. That's a cop doing a wrong thing. But this is a cop that actually used the uniform to perpetuate this situation. Absolutely. And that just drove everyone nuts. You know, when people tried to intervene, the bystander saying, take his pulse, get off his neck. He used his authority to tell these people to, to back up or to stop and used the power of his position in order to continue to inflict the harm and punishment, degradation and brutality against Floyd. And that is intolerable. There are a few other officers that are also being charged. They are also going to be facing, I think, federal charges along with Floyd in an upcoming trial. So this particular situation, this particular sentencing is not the only sentencing that we're going to see, depending on whether there's a conviction at the federal civil rights trial. So we have an upcoming trial. He has been indicted. And also the three other officers that were involved in Floyd's arrest are scheduled for trial in March on state charges of aiding and abetting both murder and manslaughter. So they're going to stand trial with Chauvin on these federal charges as well. No date has been set for that trial. Last time you were on, we talked a little bit about a case where there were two officers involved. One pulled a gun and shot the suspect. The other one didn't pull a gun. And I was intrigued about the idea of the two officers behaving so disparately in the same situation. In this case, I have another situation where you've got a crowd of people who are basically advocating for the person on the ground and telling the cop, you need to stop what you're doing. You're harming this person. But in the meantime, it wasn't just Chauvin. So you have all these other officers who are standing there who are basically making the same call that Chauvin is making, who are saying, this is okay. None of them stepped in to intervene or to stop it or to say, whoa, this is too far. Some of the folks in the crowd, one of them at least was a first responder who talked about her distress at having that instinct to want to step up and to help and being unable to because you can't interfere with what the police are doing. You had all of these disparate reactions to the same situation, but the people in control were unified in perpetuating what ended up being a lethal abuse. When I look at that and when I see that his fellow police officers were right there supporting what he was doing and supporting that decision, which obviously is why they're also going to be standing trial, it really points to a systemic problem. When I look at the idea of a police force saying, this is not what we train this officer to do, my question is, then why didn't the rest of your officers step in and say, this is violating your training? 
Yeah, so that becomes a, a really complicated question that law enforcement is really going to have to wrestle with. That is the idea of the thin blue line, that the blue wall of silence, and this duty to intervene that is now being passed or instituted in many either state legislatures or different police departments, rules and regulations, codes of conduct, policies, procedures, whatever they call them. That's something that I think we're going to get to understand. It's my understanding, and if I'm remembering correctly, that Derek Chauvin was a senior most officer on the scene. He had about 19 years on. The other three officers that were involved had two years or less of duty. So the culture of the vast majority of police departments and probably every job that, that exists is the senior officer or senior person is the person in charge. So you're going to defer to the person in charge. What these new laws are looking to do or new rules and regulations are looking to do is to say, we don't care who's in charge. If you see something egregious, a crime going on or where your fellow officers should do something, whether they are senior or not, we're going to demand that you intervene, even physically, if you must intervene and stop whatever's going on. So that was not the culture. While some departments had that on the books, you know, maybe a more of an academic type of thing, it's there written in the policies. I almost guarantee you that none of that was being practiced on a day-to-day -day basis. And so I think that what you're going to see happening is you're going to see that go from theory into actual practice where people are going to step in and say, I don't care what's going on. I'm not going to jail for you. Get your foot off his neck, unloosen the handcuffs, stop kicking this guy. So I think that that's going to change. So that was the culture in the vast majority of police departments uh, where the senior officer was in charge and we're going to listen to him or her and follow their direction. So that's going to change. I can't speak to the specific situation, but I do think that in general, when there is that sort of power imbalance in authority and seniority, that there is that sort of intimidation for people that are not as empowered by that system to step up and what they call speak truth to power, right? Like get in the face of somebody that's your senior that you could face repercussions and say or do a thing. Whether or not a person should in any specific situation put themselves on the line like that is another question. I do think it's probably more empowering when you're another police officer. However, I do get the seniority issue, whether or not these officers would have behaved differently with, a, with somebody else in Chauvin's situation. I can't speak to that. There's a trial that's you know, happening. So that will be a question I'm sure that's asked or something that's presented. But there is a power imbalance. love about what you just said, the theory versus practice, is that we're seeing a lot of that right now in a way that is broader than just this particular trial and just this narrow situation that we're talking about. I'm seeing a lot of people that are trying to dismiss systemic racism by basically pointing at legal code and saying, it's illegal to discriminate, therefore there's no discrimination, which to me is like saying, it's on the books that you can challenge the senior officer who does something wrong. Therefore, that always happens. Or in the military, for example, you don't have to follow an illegal order. But when you're out in the field and there's a bunch of people with guns and the leader of your unit is telling you to do something and he's got people backing him up, are you going to really not do it? That's a lot of pressure to put on a person. So the idea that people are basically saying that theory must therefore be practice 
is absolutely ridiculous. I think it's it's a horrible argument. And I have trouble believing that even the people putting it forward can actually believe that there is not the possibility that practice could deviate from theory. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, well, I mean, that's exactly what it is. That was the theory, but it was not in practice. Whether we speak about the military or police culture, it just wasn't. We just look at, at a few years ago, there was a Buffalo, New York police officer. Uh, she ended up being fired from her job for doing exactly what we are asking our officers to do today, and that is to step up and intervene. Because she told her supervisor, the supervisory and all the administration took the side of the officer and said, we don't want rats on our department. Essentially, this is what they said. And they fired her. So because of this George Floyd incident, and because we want officers to step up, you know, she had lawyers. Of course, she was fighting with the city of Buffalo for years because she wanted her pension. And so she finally, after this George Floyd incident, got her pension in an apology from the city of Buffalo. It may have been on the books and we this is what we have said. We want our police officers to do and, you know, this doesn't happen. These are the ramifications or repercussions of what happened with well, this female officer was fired. There's many other officers where if you tell uh, on what's going on, you tell your supervisor, which is the right thing to do, then you may not receive backup on the next call. A sergeant would say to you, hey, listen, we don't want that type of thing on, a, on our department. So even though this is in the books and this is what we tell the public and we stand up in forums and meetings and say this is what goes on, there's a truth and reality of what police culture is. And police culture says that you have to be there to, to back up your brother or sister officer because when the crap hits the fan, it's not going to be the citizens who's going to come and back you up. It's going to be your fellow officer. So if you want that fellow officer to come to your aid with all due speed, then you better know when to keep your mouth shut and when to do what's right. That's the culture that this incident is going to break. I think that we're going to see a, a drastic change particularly with cell phone cameras, particularly with body-worn cameras, uh, we're going to see a drastic change in how police officers think. These three officers, we can probably get into this. I don't think they're going to be convicted, but I think that the trial of these three officers, and as it's broken down, they should have intervened, is going to at least at the minimum send a shockwave and ripple effect uh, throughout all of the law enforcement that says, you all better, better hear what we're saying. We want you to intervene. We want you to step up when and if things are going awry. When I'm working with people, I know that I want to be on everybody's good side because when the day comes when I need something from a department and I really need to put a rush on it, let's say that their normal turn time is a week and I need this thing in three days. If they like me, I will get that thing in three days. If they don't like me, I will get our turn time is a week. So it pays to be in good with your colleagues because there's always going to be levels of discretion that you could be harmed by, whether to a good, you know, a high degree or a low degree. You can have repercussions that are within the realm of what's allowable. You'll just always get the more negative response than the positive response. And that makes your heart, your job harder. Absolutely. And I think that your analogy or, or real life scenario is, is exactly what pe people understand exactly what it is, but you don't think that that happens or people don't want to think that that happens in law enforcement. Just think about that three days versus a week turnaround time, maybe even longer. <laughs> uh, you know, if it's normally a week, if they don't like you, they might give you two weeks. You know, they might not be able to get it to you in time or lose things. This is a game that humanity often plays, but when it plans out in, in law enforcement, we have seen the very worst of what could happen when and if the good old boys club blue wall of silence is not adhered to. That's what's coming into play here. And there's going to be a certain cracks in it that are going to have great effects. The next thing I had on my bullet list was 
implications. So I'm thinking about the social implications and responses from a social perspective for this verdict, not just the immediate responses from community, but also what socially does this mean? Because the people who are viewing the Chauvin trial as being an individual trial about an individual interaction, just they're not on board, they're missing the boat. My first thoughts when I hear the sentence are, number one, is he actually going to serve the 15 years? He's sentenced to 22.5, but they're saying that that usually will roll out to a 15-year actual service. So will he actually serve the 15 years is my first question, which can't be answered until 15 years from now. Will the sentence be reduced or appealed? So I still have concerns that even though we saw this sentence, the sentence won't hold. Now, I don't know how realistic my concerns are around that, but I do know that there's always going to be a potential for intervention so that the 15 years itself doesn't get served. Do you have any concerns around that? Uh, Well, I certainly think there's going to be appeals. I don't see any reason. Neither one of us are lawyers. I don't see why he would not serve the sentence. Uh, Maybe he may even get further time off for good behavior or something along those lines. I'm sure that any type of governing board, parole board, or whoever's in charge of the correction system would certainly understand the ramifications if he's supposed to do at least 15 and he does three or four. So I, I think that that, uh, you know, the, the outcry from the public would just be massive. And so therefore, we would see a disparity and difference between the police officer and a routine public citizen. I do think that there's going to be appeals as far as his court trial and, and possibly even the sentence. People are always going to appeal and say whatever happened was unfair, whether it's something that was said during the trial or the application of this uh, sentence. I'm expecting all that, but I'm, I'm sure that a lot of thought was put into the sentencing as well as the trial by the prosecution team as well as the judge. I'm sure that all the their legal precautions were fully analyzed. They know that the world was watching this. If this comes up in five years... Will the iron still be as hot? Oh, I I absolutely think that. The iron is still hot concerning Rodney King. People are still feeling the effects of that. This is one of the most major police incidents in history. When you talk about Frank Serpico, you talk about Rodney King, you talk about some of the lynchings that occurred. I mean, this this is something that is going to be studied by psychologists, by legal experts, police experts. For years, this is going to be in history books, criminal justice books, law journals, psychological analysis for for years. So I think that it's always going to be on the forefront of people's attention. I think that the community is going to make sure that that it's recognized. Uh, You know, they celebrated or for lack of a better term, celebrated in the anniversary of that. They're going to reflect on it in five years, 10 years. If and when the George Floyd Act ever gets signed into law, it'll always be something that is that is on the forefront of the public's attention. So I I don't see that this dying down anytime. I'm not sure that I would agree with that. I think, for example, when you mentioned Rodney King, I know the Rodney King case. It's not a case that I'm going to forget. But if you asked me, the perpetrators, where are they now? I would say, I don't, I don't know. I'd have to Google. Well, I I would too. I I don't know that. Yes, I see your point about that. But we understand the Rodney King verdict of trial. We understand. I I don't know where the perpetrators are, how much time they did, if they're out, or they write wrote books. I I don't know either. But we certainly understand the implications of the Rodney King case, right? The first time the video 
tape was released. When I taught classes at the police academy, I talked about the Rodney King case and we talked about every strike after. There was a certain point where the judge said, okay, I'm just throwing the number. I don't ex remember exactly where the judge said everything after the third strike with the baton was excessive. Those kind of minutiae that we understand, there's a point where the public is saying, okay, a certain amount of force is applicable. That, that's fine. But it's the excessive force. In the case of Rodney King, it was each baton strike after. It was this kick right here. It was this punch right there. These are the things that are excessive. We cannot allow our police officers to engage in this type of excessive situation. We can look at the O.J. Simpson trial and the, the mess that that was. Complete incompetence from soup to nuts in that case. We may not be able to, to articulate them as you and I sit here, but we that's burned in our minds and our memories. Uh, and I think the same thing is going to happen here. Even if five years, 10 years from now, people are going to say, yeah, okay, you remember that time that cop may not know his name anymore, may have to Google his name. Remember the time that cop put his, his knee on that guy's neck for almost 10 minutes? People are always going to have that in the back of their mind. And the riots that emanated from that are always going to be part of our memory. That's just my opinion. I mean, I, I might've been confusing here because I did start out saying that I want to talk about social implications. And as far as social implications, I do agree with you. What I wonder though, is will he actually serve the 15 years? that we expect him to serve of the 22.5 years he was sentenced to. And up on appeal, when we say, will a parole board give him early release? My question is, five years from now, will anybody be watching any more than I watched what happened to the perpetrators in the Rodney King case? Well, if we're talking about the parole board, I mean, there's there's all kinds of you know reports that are generated. I'm sure that the family will be able to come there and speak and say, remember what he did, remember the heinousness, remember the abuse of authority, and they'll refresh the recollection of the parole board members if and when it's you know five and ten years from now. I, I know that they want to let people out of prison. I know that they want to decrease the size of the prison population, but I can't see that him being a murderer would be part of that. I could be completely wrong, and they may say, well, listen, he's not a police officer anymore. He's been a model citizen. He doesn't pose a threat to society anymore because he cannot abuse the same authority that he had before. And they may let him out after five years. That is a total possibility. I'm not saying it's impossible, but I am saying as far as the social implications for that, you will see riots in the street again, because here's what the public will say. Here's a white cop who got away with murder, who killed someone in the system just doesn't care. Anyone on the parole board, probation board, whatever, who doesn't understand that implication doesn't deserve to sit on that board. We will see more riots in the street, more complaints. It would be a political nightmare for any gubernatorial or city or county officials who are up for a re-election. It would, it would just be a nightmare to let this man out after five years. There were some articles that came out about the white community's response to BLM and how there was a lot of white support initially, but then during COVID, it kind of waned. And now there's been a loss and a drop off of support from the white community for the BLM movement and injustice against the black community. When a group is in a small minority, they really need that allyship from the larger community in order to affect change. So if the LGBTQ community was very good at pulling in support from cishet people, and that really helped push their movement forward in a very quick way. And BLM initially saw quite a bit of support from the white community, and that really enlarged some of those protests and some of those marches, because there was this groundswell of support from the white community who was becoming more woke, I suppose, to these issues, seeing more video of these brutal acts, seeing more video of white racist encounters um, with, you know, a Black person having to deal with it. And I think when white people saw that, 
they were far more inclined to say, hey, this is actually happening. And it's a shame that it took looking at video footage of these things to get white people to understand that this wasn't just some fantasy within the Black community that they were dealing with this type of discrimination and prejudice. But it sadly did take that, right? It took having to see it for people to believe it. I would have thought that once that was achieved, you can't really unsee it. So that support will stick around, but it doesn't seem to be sticking around. And that's the thing that concerns me, the reaction from my own community and whether we will continue to be supportive. And I worry just based on history that we won't continue the support, that we will find some other issue to go be concerned with, and that this is going to fall off the radar of the vast majority of citizens in this country who aren't Black and who don't see this as an immediate ongoing thing that they have to deal with day in and day out. I have some concerns there, and it might just be that because I understand kind of my own community and how hard it is to motivate us to get on board with anything about social justice, there's always so much pushback from within my own community that I'm not, I, I may, maybe I'm too cynical. I hope I am. I hope you're right. And I hope I'm wrong. And I hope the support will be there and will continue and that this would still be an issue five years from now. Well, to that degree, I would hope that it's not an issue. And here's what, what I mean by that. I hope that we can make the strides in the changes where we can forget about it. I hope that the advent of different laws rules, changes to policies, procedures, more body cam footage, that we can put such a lid and quashing on this type of behavior. What we want is to quash the behavior. And so I would hope in a sense that we get this right as law enforcement, that we get this right. And the changes that we are asking for and demanding are actually being made and changed. And so we can focus on something else. I mean, this is what I do, but who wants to talk about this? It's civil rights movement and marchers during the 60s protesting and picketing about water fountains and voting. We were we're back to voting now, unfortunately, but we've changed so much. So, so we should not be addressing the same issues. So if we're still talking about the same issues as far as policing, brutality, excessive force, the treatment of Black community, then there's something really, really fundamentally wrong if we haven't straightened this out in five years. That's the reason we want to pass the George Floyd Act. It's the reason we want uh, our police departments to ban chokeholds and to take a real serious look at qualified immunity and these other types of things that, that the community is asking for. And if after five years, we haven't made moved the needle on this. And I agree that there's a lot of pushback, a lot of resistance to this because people are looking at this George Floyd incident as a one-off. Our police officers aren't routinely acting like this. And I agree with that. Police departments are not routinely acting like this. Whenever I address police reform, what I'm talking about is transparency, right? I'm talking about the changes to policies that we're trying to see in the George Floyd Act. This is a slam dunk and a home run, Derek Chauvin. What he did police officers around the country are not routinely doing. What I do think they were routinely doing, and I'm putting routinely in quotation marks, is, is they were disrespecting the lives of African-Americans. I doubt very highly if Derek Chauvin would have taken the same measures towards a white citizen. He may have slammed him down to the ground, told him to shut up, but he would not have shown the blatant disregard for human life that he did 
with this particular individual in this particular community. And sometimes it's not even really about race, it's about class. It's about, we go into a lower class white neighborhood and we don't think that we have to show people the humanity. And those are things, systematic problems we really need to adjust. That's why police officers are taking implicit bias courses. That's why they're taking all these different courses and to understand that we have to treat people fairly, no matter what their socioeconomic status is, we still have to treat them fairly. I, I'm hoping that these issues really can be brought to bear and brought to the forefront of our attention in five years that we understand that these problems aren't a problem anymore. I do want to touch on the the classist issue. During Jim Crow, we saw a lot of laws, some of which were things like literacy tests for voting. We understand that the reason for those tests had racist underpinnings. They were no longer allowed to say you can't vote if you're Black. And so they said you can't vote if you're not literate. And then they made sure that Black people were not getting the same level of education. So it was an easy way to target a Black community without actually saying, I'm targeting the Black community. I could say that was a classist law that impacted poor whites, which it did. And when I look at, for example, the idea of of classism and white people in poverty, you have really disparate poverty rates between black and white communities, sort of like you would see disparate rates in literacy rates between black and white communities in response to a law requiring literacy for voting. I do believe that classism is definitely involved and that poverty is a big part of this. I have to, though, point out, I suppose, that when we're talking about classism, it's very much disproportionately going to involve Black communities as opposed to white communities. I think it's like 9% of the white population is considered to be in poverty. And I do understand we have issues with how we define poverty, but it's like almost 30% of the Black community that would be defined in poverty. Even when we're talking about classism, it's inseparable from racism Yeah, uh, I think that that debate is going to rage on for quite some time. It's something that I try to look at as well as my in my studies. But I think that there's some things that we need to really take a look at. I think that for the black community, there's things that we need to do to address some of the issues that we're that we are having uh, when it comes to to poverty, education and achievement along those lines. So I think that we need to address those types of things. And I don't want the government trying to regulate those types of things. I think that we need to really take a look at what's going on here within our communities and and address them. As far as law enforcement coming in and thinking that whatever community that they enter into, just because it's a trailer park or an inner city project, housing complex, whatever, that they treat the people fairly. And that's an incredibly difficult task for them because they tend to dehumanize people who live below the poverty line and they tend to dehumanize them. White, black, Hispanic, that really doesn't matter. If they see you as lesser, driving a lesser lesser priced car or taking the bus or living in a certain community, then they think that you're one of these people and don't deserve the same amount of respect that someone who's got a Brooks Brothers suit on deserves. That is something that humanity has to deal with. And of course, law enforcement, our police officers are uh, human beings who suffer the same prejudices and biases, and we really have to conquer that. And I think that George Floyd, was a victim of that. Which one or was it both? Was it 50-50 class and race? Was it 60-40? I have no idea. Imagine a white person with a three-piece suit on accused of trying to pass off a $20 bill and then didn't want to get in the police car. Would he have slammed him down to the ground and all that type of thing with the kept his knee on his neck for nine minutes in the same circumstances situation if he was a white guy with a, with a Brooks Brothers suit on and Stacey Adams shoes? I don't think so. Mm-hmm. 
community and the white community, I see a lot of people who want to say that we now live in a post-racist society, that these problems are already fixed. And this is not always the same people who point to the law, but you know, there is definitely some crossover. So there are folks in my own community that will say, you know, racism isn't happening. This isn't really the issue. And what I worry about is whether they will now see this verdict, this conviction and a multi-decade sentence as evidence that, see, there's no problem. A police officer did something bad. The police officer was convicted. The police officer received a, a debatably fair sentence. And why are you people complaining, saying that, you know, there's no justice? Clearly there is justice. And so, you know, you, you don't really have a case. I see people who think that way in my own community. Like I say, they see this as a one-off. They say they don't seem to be able to pull back and see the trends, right? So when you were talking about, would this happen to a white person? Would this happen to a person of an upper echelon of class? When you look at trends, you see that it doesn't and that there is disparity. And one of the issues that I've been sharing out broadly was a poll that showed that White people express the same amount of drug use. White people express slightly more drug use, actually, when they self-report, and they express similar rates of drug sales. But when you look at the arrests, the convictions, the sentencing, you see this huge racial disparity where white people are far less likely to be arrested for it. They're far less likely to be convicted of it. They're far less likely to be incarcerated for it, even though they're reporting that they're doing it more and they're reporting that they're selling at the same rates. There are so many people that are focusing on the individual case and looking to use that as evidence that there's not a trend. They're denying the trend because of the individual data point. It makes me wonder if the folks within my community who are denying that there's a racist problem, that there is systemic racism, are. I don't know if they're just being dishonest because I don't see how you can ignore the cluster of data points and the range of disparity that can be demonstrated when you pull back and look at the larger trend. But I do worry that as justice increases, and if we see more cases like this, that at some point, all of these people who are already pulled back are going to see it as even more reason to not do more, to say that more is not needed. Just like when you're talking about the voting rights, the reason they pulled the Voting Rights Act back was arguing that, well, it's no longer needed. So they take it away. And what happens? Huge assault on voting rights. Because the underlying trend toward racism was still there. The Voting Rights Act was protecting those rights. And so you didn't see it expressed. But the moment you took the protection away, bam, there it is. And now it's all under attack again. And I just worry that white people have such a motive to not want to admit to racism or not want to admit to the levels of it. And that gives white people who are far more willing to express their racism cover. And I don't know that I can ask you to actually comment on that. I guess it's just me commenting on things that I see about my own community that concern me. And I worry that we that we won't have your back on this. Well, I'm not expecting, <laughs> I'm not, I wouldn't be expecting for that. I think that it's up to persons like yourself and other people who care to continue to agitate. If you don't want this to die down in five years, like we talked about or whatever, then you have to continue to agitate and you have to continue to 
I don't know, change school curriculums and put more people in places of power, you know, have board meetings, have meetings at work and talk about this and make sure that we're not falling back and slipping back. Because I do think the potential for falling back and slipping back, as you mentioned, the Voting Rights Act, is a, it is a clear example of what happens when we don't have that sentinel watching us and we don't have the protections. We tend to slip back. I'm very curious as to the mindset of a vast majority of white people and what they think about certain things. Again, that your analysis of the Voting Rights Act is spot on. Within two hours of the Voting Rights Act being overturned, Texas uh, had some kind of law that they were producing. A lot of people want this. They don't think that certain protections are necessary. I think that a lot of times they see certain things slipping away from them. They get concerned. They see a changing demographic, changing power structure, uh, and they're concerned about that. And I think that they're going to fight against that. In the case of law enforcement, I, you know, I don't know. I think that these things need to be under books. I think we need to continue to push for the changes that we want, more mental health care, banning of chokeholds, officers who are mandated to intervene, all these things that we're, that we're calling for, we need to continue to push for them and we cannot uh, let our foot off the gas. To the white community, it takes persons like you to say, hey, listen, this problem isn't over. And if we allow ourselves to slip back or we are not vigilant and don't keep up, keep this up, then there's someone who's going to come along and say, well, these protections aren't necessary. These types of things are necessary. And see, the, we don't need these type of things. We live in a post-racial society. See, we're a good people. We don't need these types of things. And next thing you know, they take the protections off and another knee is across someone's neck. And something that could have been preventable is now brought us back to this place where we have to fight for these types of rights all over again. And, you know, another situation that we could quote is the whole abortion rights thing. This is now being challenged again. Roe v. Wade, which is 1973, is now on the chopping block again. How many times do we have to continue to go through this? These protections, we like to think we have rights and, and these protections are not guaranteed and we have to continue to fight for them. Otherwise, they will be taken away from us. Do you feel like the police unions have your back? Do you feel like the police unions are going to look at this as an excuse to minimize reforms or to not reform? Do you think that they might use the Chauvin trial as a sacrifice to say that police are held to account and that things are fixed and that it's not a big problem, it's just a bad apple? I definitely think that. They're probably going to stand by Chauvin and say that he did nothing wrong. Some police unions would say that. I think his own police union kind of took the hands-off approach. There's some police unions out there who are exactly going to say what you just said. We are held to account. We got convictions that would point to the 11 other officers who were convicted and back from 2005, I think you quoted. And so they're going to look at all these types of things and say, we are held to account. I know that many people are already saying when there are egregious situations, the qualified immunity does not take precedent and officers are not covered by qualified immunity. So there's always going to be some type of, of individual and or union who's going to say, see, we're policing ourselves. There's no problems. There's nothing to see here. Let's all move along. But I still think from the community aspect, if the community is complaining about something, then there's something that needs to be fixed. And so we need to really address it. I have a, another friend who is a, an activist in the Black community who brought up the qualified immunity issue. So when they were looking at police reforms at the congressional level, some people were saying that they didn't want to take away qualified immunity. And they used the argument you just used, which was if it's you know completely horrible, it wouldn't apply anyway. And so his point was, if we have to sacrifice some things that we want, let's sacrifice that and we will go forward with the rest of it, which is more important because this really is kind of, you know, already addressed. 
I'm of two minds on that. So number one, I do understand the pragmatic reason that we are all willing to compromise things. So sometimes if you're not going to get everything you want, you you prioritize and you go for what's the priority. I am 100% understanding of that. I would not say all or nothing, but I also feel a sense of infuriation when I see members of the Black community who are put in a position by white leadership to have to compromise on basic civil rights to say a cop is going to be protected if they abuse me in some way or that they might be defended in this more than normal. You know, these protections are in place and and we should be willing to sacrifice these parts of our civil rights um, for these other parts of our civil rights. I remember an analogy from another community, not to decenter the conversation, but just to give an example. I remember when civil unions were floated for LGBTQ. I'm not in the LGBTQ community. And in my head, I thought, well, this is great. They'll have all the same legal rights. We'll just call it something else. And it's great. It never even crossed my mind that what I was advocating was separate but equal, which I should know better than to say that's acceptable. So my friends in the LGBT community schooled me, let me know this is not acceptable, that they deserve the same equality and the same rights, and that civil unions are not a step they were willing to take. They didn't want civil unions. They wanted equality, marriage equality. And so they proceeded with, we demand marriage equality, and they got marriage equality. On the one hand, again, I I understand if you can't get everything, you don't want to walk away with nothing. But at the same time, it's just, a, I guess, a point, not a question. It infuriates me to see people have to compromise their rights. I, I just don't think anybody should have to beg for their rights. Well, I'm in agreement with that. And I struggle with the term rights. I mean, is it really a right if we have to <laughs> if we have to ask the government for it? I mean, that's probably a whole... Well, but I mean, the, the government is is there to make sure that rights are protected and defended. But what I'm saying is that when we're talking about police reform, it really is about how police are behaving predominantly with regard to the racist abuse that we're seeing. That's what's really motivating this change. If, if it weren't for that, the reforms wouldn't be demanded. We wouldn't be seeing it. I'd like, like to clarify that point a little bit. I think that some of the reforms and change changes aren't necessarily surrounded by race or centered around race. And here's what I mean by that. I interviewed a man whose name is Michael Bell. Michael Bell was a colonel in the Air Force. He was a pilot in the Air Force. His son, he's you know, Michael Bell is white. His son was killed by police officers uh, in a tr- tragic case of what seems to be just a terrible mistake that the Kenosha, Wisconsin Police Department never admitted to and covered up, essentially. And that's what I'm talking about when I talk about police reform. And one of the things I said at that time, and I'm going to say it again, is what you allow people to do to them is eventually going to come back to you, right? So the police department in Kenosha, now I don't know much about them, but I assume that they, just like every other police department, will really focus their uh, attention not just on criminals, but they were policing Black people. It's to keep Black people out of communities, to stop, harass them, see what they're doing and all that type of thing, right? The outgrowth of the slave patrols. That's how law enforcement was established in this country. So when they came from him in the morning, the the saying is, when they come for you in the morning, they'll come for you in in the evening. 
what you allow people to do, to cover up, to lie, to make things fit the narrative, to plant evidence, all this type of corrupt behavior that was essentially focused at communities of color, those of, of uh, lower socioeconomic status, eventually comes to your door. And as you mentioned, white people sometimes just are oblivious to what's going on. So here's this Air Force colonel, upstanding citizen, doing the right thing his whole life, well-respected, making a little bit of coin. And now his son is now killed. For the first time in his life, he understood the justice, uh, the injustice that he could not get from his police department, from the district attorney's office. All he got was cover up, the runaround. He couldn't get answers. And so he had to hire private investigators to, to all get to this type of thing in order to get to the truth. I'm not just talking about racial problems within policing. And, and let me be very clear. I believe that they exist. But if we're going to fix policing for everyone, no matter what socioeconomic class, no matter what race you are, if you as a, as a white woman get pulled over by the police and you shouldn't have the police officer making passage at you and telling you you're going to get a ticket unless you perform sexual favors for him. How do we stop that type of thing from happening to a white female? How do we stop it to happen from black females? How do we stop all this type of craziness that goes on or that we've heard goes on within, within law enforcement? Well, we have to establish a level of transparency. We have to make sure that police officers are wearing body cameras. That's the type of thing that I think that we really had to get to. If we had to break down these blue walls of silence and that will fix the George Floyds. It'll make you a better person. It will make you a safer citizen when, when you know when you come in contact with the police that they're going to behave professionally. It'll make the Michael Bells of the world know that if something tragic happens to their son, that they won't get the runaround. And we can also prevent the type of tragedies that happen to Michael Bell's son because police officers will be, will be more thoughtful. They won't be so scared. They won't be so quick to pull their guns in situations where a baton or mace or something along those lines would exist. So that's the type of things that I'm talking about police reform. I don't want to just say that police reform is geared towards just let's just fix the relationship with the black people because we're all Americans and we all deserve to, to be safe when we walk the streets, not only from the criminals who are walking the streets, but we need to be safe and know that when and if we're stopped and held by the police, that they're going to do the right thing. I agree with what you just said. If it sounded like I was saying otherwise, I appreciate the chance to clarify. So let me give another example to kind of explain what I'm saying. You brought up the issue of abortion as something that we're backsliding with. I sometimes go after abortion as a religious issue and someone will step forward and remind me that there are secular people who are anti-choice. I don't disagree with that. But I will say that if you removed all of the religious motivation from the anti-choice movement, there wouldn't be anything left to challenge for reproductive rights. You would have some secular people who are against abortion, but they would not make up enough to actually cause a threat to those rights. When I talk about the idea of police reform, I don't mean that there aren't broader levels of reform that are required. What I mean is that if it was left to white communities to do this, and if we took out that black community push, I just don't know if this would be on the radar. I agree with you 100%. That's why I stress that it has to be something that the white community sees as a problem. And that's why I bring up the Michael Bell situation. He didn't see it as a problem. It's not a problem until it comes to your doorstep. And to your point that we talked about earlier, in five years from now, if the white community doesn't see it as a problem, you're not going to have our backs. I, I agree with that. That's why we have to continue to agitate, to push through your podcast, through my podcast, through these different rights groups, that we have to continue to keep these types of things alive. Because eventually, it'll creep around again if we're not careful. 
And we'll have another Michael Bell situation. We'll have another George Floyd situation. We'll have another Eric Garner situation. If we don't watch these things and we don't, we don't keep them. And just because the laws in the books, as you and I discussed earlier, just because it's on the books, it doesn't mean it's in practice, right? Just because it's a theory and we can look at it, it doesn't mean it's going to be a practice. So yes, we have to remain extremely vigilant. And I agree with you that if it's not on the, the white community's radar, then it's not going to be. That's why so many more Black people are trying to enter into politics and trying to move into the middle class and trying to do so many things so they can change the policy so these things don't slide back. No matter what forms of government we're talking about, whether it's education or policing or getting the sewers fixed in our neighborhoods, African-Americans are trying to enter into these spaces and arenas, uh, not because they're trying to take control, but because they want a voice, right? You can't fix all the potholes in the white communities and not fix them in the black community. That's just unfair. And so that's why we want a voice. So I'll, I'll just leave it there with that. Those were all of the points that I had regarding the Chauvin sentencing. Did you have anything else that you wanted to add or any other observations? I'm not sure if we talked about this, but I just let me just say that what I think is going to do for law enforcement, people have been asking, do you think that it's going to change law enforcement? Uh, are they going to really make some, some changes because of this sentencing? I think we probably alluded to it, but let me just make it more clear. I think that law enforcement is going to take a serious look at this and really is going to take a serious look at their policies and procedures because of the general push that we got surrounding the whole situation, the whole trial situation. Do I think that the sentencing is going to further push that? No, I don't, because I think that many people think that this was just a one-off, that this was a slam dunk and a home run, and this was a no-brainer, and he's going to get what he deserves. I still think that we have to push for the change for the the Congressional uh, Floyd Joy Act. If we can't get it done on the congressional level, then we should do it by the state and or city council level. We really have to push and agitate for these changes that we want within our communities and within our police departments. And people have to get out there and vote. I know that in many places it's under assault, but you have to attend meetings, forums, sit on juries and vote. Those type of civic actions will dictate how the police department functions. If and when you feel that as if your police department or police officer has wronged you, make sure that you get license numbers and street addresses where you're at, where the location happened at, a description of the officer, ask to speak to a supervisor. And if you can't get any justice on the scene, do not fight or wrestle with the officer, but make sure that you complain on another time. Comply now, complain later. So I think that those are the type of measures that need to be taken. Again, um, do I think it's going to change law enforcement as far as the sentencing? No. But do I think that overall some changes will take effect? Yes. But we have to keep active, had to keep at it so these things don't die down because they have the potential. I think we've established that. They have the potential of dying down if we don't keep them alive. And we can't make the serious mistake, as we talked about with other cases and other social issues, that just because it's not going on now, that they think that the problem is solved. Everyone thought that we had defeated racism in the 80s and 90s. And then people want to blame Donald Trump for the rise in racism. But the real rise in racism came the day after Barack Obama was elected. And we saw a spike in the Googling of white supremacist groups. There has been an undercurrent in this country that has long been there. And the election of Barack Obama and then Trump coming into office really kind of stoked up these pressures right now. And that's one of the reasons why we're at where we're at. So we cannot become complacent where we are. We have to continue to keep our eyes on the prize and push for those things that we want.
like to have a discussion on an issue that is concerning me that has to do not with Chauvin, but with what we saw with the DC police on January 6th. I was wondering about the presence of police unions since this was such a horrific scenario for so many police. We saw police being brutalized, hospitalized, injured, attacked. I just kept wondering where are the police unions when the rhetoric and the lies that were causing this insurrection were being called out. I didn't see the police unions standing there calling it out alongside people that were condemning it. When they were talking about the National Guard delay, I wasn't seeing the police union saying, why wasn't backup sent sooner? Why was there this hours long delay in sending the National Guard? I did Google to see what kind of statements the police unions had put out. Were they present? Was I just not looking in the right spaces? Was I not seeing the activity that was actually happening? What I found was a statement from the police union saying that 140 officers had been injured in that insurrection. There was a statement from the police union warning that there would be departures. There was another statement announcing that there were, was a huge batch of departures after that riot. And there was also some condemnation of the police leadership of that day that they had more information and they weren't as prepared as they needed to be which in my opinion sounded valid. I'm obviously not a police officer and not involved in police leadership, but some of the criticisms that they raised in light of the fact that they were warned that there might be violence did seem fair criticism. But I didn't see anything about that delay in the National Guard dispatch. I didn't see anything about the rhetoric that brought this angry mob to the Capitol that did this violent damage. I saw nothing addressing the sources and the backup that didn't arrive one of the things that bothers me about this is that police unions are traditionally political entities. They will endorse candidates. They will endorse particular policies and legislation. This is not unusual for a police union to step in and take a political position. Where are they here? And you had some thoughts on that that I thought were insightful. So if you don't mind stepping up and just sort of giving some perspective. I talked to a couple of different people who knew some some of the inner workings of the Capitol Police. It's an incredibly political organization. They mostly are walking senators to their car, protecting the outers, making sure that they get to the bus or train or, or whatever, uh, maybe escorting their little cousins around and doing those type of errands rather than actual law enforcement. Not saying that they're any less of law enforcement or anything along those lines. And I, again, I'm getting this kind of secondhand as to what they really do, their functions. They're often paralyzed by the inability to make decisions because every decision that they're going to make is going to be political. If someone's little cousin who attends Harvard or some other, you know, Ivy League school or even high school or something along those lines, some private school, they're acting stupid on, on the campus of, of Congress, they may not get arrested because they're politically connected. They're constantly being hampered by these political decisions. The ability to call for the National Guard was delayed because they just used to being a paralyzed organization where the top of the, the higher echelon just can't make a decision for whatever reason, because they're always thinking of the political ramifications of whatever decision that they make. Working in police departments, which are inherently political, add a layer of congressional leadership really paralyzes and causes a great deal of fear. So I think that that's probably where we saw the, the delay calling the National Guard. 
it's as far as the police unions making comments about that decision, the police union, yes, you're absolutely right. They are inherently uh, political. They would be willing to sacrifice calling for what's right, criticizing the leadership of the Capitol Police in order to get their own political gains met. And a lot of times they are in agreement. They were in agreement with the Trump administration and vast majority of police unions are vastly conservative. And so when we see one politician make the statement that the persons walking through the rotunda or taking pictures and like tourists on that day and the police union refusing to call out that particular senator for the ridiculous statements uh, or congressman for the ridiculous statements that they made. There's a reason for their silence. They have political motivations. They want bills signed. They don't want bills signed. For example, the George Floyd Act, they do not want that bill signed. The police union does not want that bill signed. So they would buddy up to and pal up to anyone along the way in order to get their needs met. And so that means throwing people under the bus if that means sacrificing the few officers in their health and well-being, the 140 officers who were injured and the two or three that went home and committed suicide, if that means we got to throw them under the bus to protect the one million other police officers in this country, then that's what we'll do. And that can be sick and disgusting, but that's the political game that the police unions often play and that plays out. And we can see that type of thing playing out now. At NPR, they're reporting that the Army Major General testified the day before the insurrection that he received a letter with an unusual restriction on deploying any quick reaction for service members unless granted uh, explicit approval by the then Secretary of the Army, Ryan McCarthy. And according to this, it took more than three hours for former President Donald Trump's Defense Department to approve a request for the D.C. National Guard to intervene in the deadly January 6th Capitol insurrection. It sounds like a request was made, but there was a hours long delay in approval. I mean, I'd love to be able to comment on that. You know, I'm, I was never, I'm not the higher echelon of the army, but I, what I would assume is that somebody has to make that request. I would assume that we have the chief of the, the Capitol police would have to make some type of request to say, listen, we're being overrun. We can't deal with this. I don't know if that would have to come from the mayor. You know, I, I just don't have that information as to who would make those type of requests. Is it the sergeant at arms of the- Well, but I guess what I'm saying is it says here that a request was made that it took three hours to approve it. Yeah, that that's the higher echelon of, of whoever's making those types of decisions. That's the Defense Department. This is Donald Trump's DOD. If it's the Defense Department, does he have to run it by the president? Who's stoking this up? Does he, who's making these decisions? You know, I, right, I and I mean, that was that's actually a question though that has been asked very often publicly is, Who held this up? How was this held up? Why was it held up? And as far as I know, I still don't have an answer to that. If we had a uh, a, a trial, if we had an investigation, we might be able to get to that, right? <laughs> we might be able to answer these questions. <laughs> right. So I guess my question, though, is why? where is the police union demanding an answer to this? Why aren't they saying that months out from January 6th, we still don't even know why there was a three-hour delay? I am in agreement with you. I think it's despicable and disgusting that the police union is not asking for this and they should be asking for it. 140 of their officers were injured. The Capitol Police Union and the D.C. Uh, union should be asking, what's up with this? Why is this going on? I, I'm in agreement with you. I, I, I kind of feel like if 140 officers had been injured and a couple dozen hospitalized at a BLM protest and nobody could understand how it happened or why. And there was obfuscation around an investigation and it was all cloudy. I just don't think the union would be standing down. 
Uh, I don't think so either. I think that if it's any other situation besides the own homegrown domestic terrorists, uh, we would have had answers, whether it's Black Lives Matter, if it was a Muslim type of rally or any other that the basic foundations and the majority were not white males, uh, we would have had answers to this by now. We would have had investigations upon investigations, but that's just not the case. And that type of hypocrisy has been called out numerous times. It seems to me that the police unions are defending police in a way that almost actually harms them. That by drawing a line where they want to protect the jobs and protect the officers from any kind of criticism or from any sort of system overhaul that would, like you described earlier, result in changes that would make the citizenry just generally more safe. The citizenry then, we would expect, and I'm certainly happy to test this out, would respond to that by having a better relationship with police. I don't think police would be in as much danger if society was working as well with police as it could. This is almost defending bad behavior that then perpetuates the problem of people having an issue with the police versus defending cops by getting on board with reforms that would actually make things better for police in the long run. That seems to be the dichotomy that police unions often hide behind is nobody else understands the job and we're going to make these types of decisions and back these different types of politicians or policies because in the long run, it's going to help the overall organization, policing overall. And that is sometimes what police unions do. And I, I know a lot of police officers who actually hate their police union because I had a conversation with the lieutenant one time and he was saying that he had no use for the unions because they only protect bad officers. So in a situation where somebody should be fired, here the police union is standing up for them. And that creates a complete cloud of disrespect for all police officers. When the police union stand up and say, we're defending this officer, uh, we're standing by him and we want to make sure that we is provided the best defense. As American citizens and as members of the, of a union, you know, I agree with that in theory, but there's sometimes in some cases where these police officers' conduct was so egregious that we the union at minimum should keep their mouths shut, not release any type of statement. This is unions playing politics. Again, they're sacrificing the few for the many, and that's just the way that it goes sometimes. So your disappointment is well noted, and it's one that the I share and many other officers share as well. I just want to say thank you very much for your time. I appreciate your insights. It's great to have somebody on who has the experience and that context to be able to share thoughts and provide the context for some of these issues. So I'm, I hope that you'll remain a resource because I'm sure there's going to be other issues in the future that we would want to have you come back on and talk about. So thanks very much. Absolutely. Anytime you call, I'll, I'll certainly answer. I'll certainly talk about any any situation that you like. I appreciate you having me on. I really appreciate it. That's it for this episode of At Home in My Head, exploring life in the cottage at Woodland Corners. Thanks for listening, and as always, stay safe, be well, and never stop exploring.